Well, hello and welcome back to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are on a mission to prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships as we make our biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And as I always say, if this is your first episode, I want to say welcome. I'm beyond excited to have you hanging out with us today. And if you're returning, welcome back. You know how much I appreciate and love you for coming back every single week. And today's guest is AJ Jacobs. AJ Jacobs is an author, journalist, lecturer, and human guinea pig. He has written four New York Times bestsellers that combine memoir, science, humor, and a dash of self-help. Among his books are The Year of Living Biblically, in which he followed the hundreds of rules of the Bible as literally as possible, and Thanks a Thousand, in which he travels the globe to thank everyone who has even the slightest role in making his morning cup of coffee. He is a contributor to NPR, The New York Times, and Esquire, among others. He has given several TED Talks, including ones about creating a one-world family and living healthy that have amassed over 10 million views. He lives in New York City with his wife and three sons and he was the answer to one down in the march 8th 2014 new york times crossword puzzle he is the owner of the world's hardest and most time-consuming puzzle ever made his newest book is called the puzzler one man's quest to solve the most baffling puzzles ever from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life convinced that puzzles have made him a better person aj set out to determine their myriad of benefits and maybe in the process solve the puzzle of our very existence well almost <laughs> in the puzzler aj meets the most zealous devotees enters sometimes with his family in tow any puzzle competition that will have him unpacks the history of the most popular puzzles and aims to solve the world's most impossible head scratchers from a mutant Rubik's cube to the hardest corn maze in America to the most sadistic jigsaw. And if AJ's name and bio is familiar, that's because AJ is a return guest. He was also episode number 33 that I titled Posing Naked, Connecting with Ludacris and Daniel Radcliffe, Almost Getting Killed by Einstein and Opossum Nipples. <laughs> so I would highly recommend checking out as that episode as well. And if you can't tell already from his bio and from the title of the first episode, AJ is an awesome, eclectic, really cool guy that does all these crazy experiments. And this episode is no different. So in this episode, you will learn three things and so much more. But as always, I want you to look up for these th three specific things. Number one, how AJ ended up representing Team USA in the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship and why he quote unquote infiltrated the CIA headquarters on a puzzle quest. Number two, how you can solve problems more effectively by viewing them as puzzles instead and how you can think more out of the box. And number three, we dive into how AJ practices creativity and he also shares some of his thoughts on being a writer as someone that has written four New York Times bestsellers. So all that to look forward to in today's episode. But before we dive in, I want to give a pre-show listener shout out, who, which this week goes to David Ogg, who left a review saying, uncover unique insights. Brandon has a way of uncovering unique insights from incredibly intelligent people. His grit, determination, curiosity, and interviewing skills are bar none. So thank you so much for those kind words, David Ogg. And if you're a returning listener and you haven't had a chance to leave a review yet, this is what you can do. You can head to ratethispodcast.com slash 7FM. That's ratethispodcast.com slash 7FM. And that's going to show you exactly how you can leave a review or 
a rating. A rating will literally take you three seconds. All you have to do is scroll up or scroll down whatever app you're listening on, tap however many stars you feel the show deserves, and that's it. You can go on your merry way. If you choose to leave an honest review like David Ogg, I would appreciate that. Would love to give you a pre-show shout out, but uh, if you just have the time today to leave a rating, that would help me a ton. So with all that said, with David's review, with AJ's crazy bio out of the way, please enjoy this incredible conversation with the one, the only AJ Jacobs. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Mr. AJ Jacobs, welcome back to the show. Super excited to dive into the puzzler and all the other crazy shenanigans you've been up to since the last time we talked. <laughs> oh, I'm delighted to be back. I, I, I'm honored to be cool. a two-time guest. Yes, of course. You're welcome back anytime. I always love a good AJ Jacobs book. And as I mentioned, I'm sure in the intro, if anybody, if you haven't stopped and listened to part one, you can go and listen to part one and hear all the crazy adventures that AJ has had from attempting to thank everybody responsible for his cup of coffee and how to connect with people, all that good stuff. But today I wanted to focus on the newest news out there, which is the puzzler. And so I thought a really fun place to start was my favorite story that you tell in the book, AJ. And it has to do with chronicling your conversion from being indifferent about jigsaws to being a competitive jigsaw puzzler. So uh, would you mind sharing why you weren't a fan and then tell us the story of your conversion and how you ended up representing Team USA in the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship? <laughs> I would be honored. And yeah, I, I've loved puzzles since I'm a, I've been a kid, but mostly crossword puzzles and, and number puzzles, logic puzzles never loved jigsaw puzzles uh i just thought they were they were too e not easy they were too uh, sort of basic uh and boy was i wrong i i as as you say i'm a convert i am a convert so uh, i'm writing this book about puzzles and how i think that they are good for people and good for humanity and uh i knew i had to do a chapter on jigsaws because they're like the the prototypical puzzle so I, um, I'm searching on the internet for something to write about jigsaws, and I run across the World Jigsaw Championship in Spain, uh, which was happening in two months. And this was right before COVID. And I, I noticed there were 40 countries represented, Brazil, Uganda, Mexico, no USA. So I said, oh my God, well, why don't I try to be Team USA? So I I send in uh, my application, figuring that I'm then going to have to do like all sorts of uh, you know, tests to try to. And he sends emails me back the next day. You are Team USA. So I got <laughs> I got my wife and my sons, and we flew to, to Spain, and we competed in the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championships, and we got trounced. We were just an embarrassment to our country. I am sorry, America. <laughs> we came in, we didn't come in last. We came in second to last. Uh, we did beat Spain, uh, to one of the hometown teams. So I feel good about that. 
But what I loved was, first of all, seeing people competing at this highest level. Uh, just the skill was remarkable. Even if it's an activity that is kind of silly, I love to see people at the top of their game. And these people, they practiced, you know, they, I'm sure they had done the 10,000 hour rule and their hands were flying and they had all of these strategies that I had never even contemplated. So it just brought home how even this seemingly simple and, and not uh, very sophisticated type of puzzle was filled with surprises and all of these ways of uh, all these hacks that are uh, delightful and, and I can go into some of them. But it was, um, it was a real wake up call that what, you know, don't take things for granted. Don't, uh, and, and I say this all the time, like you know, I, I, the stereotype is that accounting is boring. I think if I dove into accounting, it would be fascinating and there would be all these little twists and turns. So same with jigsaw puzzles all of these uh, wild uh, twists and turns. Love that. And I, I always just say, any AJ Jacobs book is good. It always makes me laugh out loud whenever I'm reading. And this story is full with a whole bunch of those things. What I highlighted this line, finally, at six hours and two minutes, we finish. Our first puzzle, that is. <laughs> and oh, that was yeah. like the time when, when everybody else had finished and it seemed like the you know the more competitive people had division of labor with some 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 people sorting the puzzles and another person assembling and they had box cutters and different sorted things. I could I could just imagine being there and be like, Holy shit, I'm way, way out of my league, but this is awesome. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we had eight hours to uh, every team had to finish four big puzzles like a a thousand to two thousand pieces and uh, and the russians uh were and there were rumors they were doping but uh, unconfirmed <laughs> but they finished in uh in like three and a half hours and we uh, finished one of the four puzzles in six hours uh but again it was just fascinating to see and i'll just give you i'll give you two quick jigsaw puzzle strategies that made me see jigsaws and life differently one was that you, um, like you say, division of labor. That's what the really good teams do. So one person was in charge of edges. One person was in charge of colors. One person was in charge of the monochromatic, the skies and the ocean. Those are always deadly. Mm. And the secret, by the way, to those is that the sky is never just the same color blue. The shades, it, it, uh, it, there's different shades of blue within the sky. So you really have to be attuned to the subtlety. And I use that as a metaphor. I tell my kids that nothing is black and white. Everything is shades of gray. So really pay attention to the subtlety and nuances. Uh, they are not interested in that lesson. But I think it's very important. That's incredible. And I, just to add on another detail that I had highlighted is that, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about the Ugandan competitor <laughs> that you faced. The, oh, the yeah. one from Uganda. <laughs> well, you know, your podcast is a lot about inspiration. This to me was one of the most inspirational stories. It was a guy from Uganda who was colorblind, but he loved jigsaws so much that he became a competitive jigsaw player. So he's a colorblind jigsaw player so it's like the um i forget the name of the one-handed pitcher who threw a no-hitter 
that to me is the same level of inspiration. So and he, he ended you up can topping do it. you, didn't he? <laughs> oh, yeah, he kicked my ass. It was embarrassing. <laughs> Love that. Love <laughs> but that. inspiring. Happy for yeah. him. Yeah. So cool. So I wanted to start there, not only because I thought it was an awesome story, but I wanted to kind of gently dip our toe in the water into these crazy forays into the world of puzzle that puzzles that you've experienced. But I would love for you to, to zoom back out a little bit even more and explain a little bit more as to why puzzles. Like what I, I know lots you talk about the book is like it's not only about puzzles, it's like there's a it fits into a broader perspective of helping us to think differently. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about how puzzles have maybe shifted your worldview a little bit and kind of what your goal of the book was going into it. Absolutely. Well, I started writing a totally different book about three years ago. It was a totally different topic. It was all about the truth crisis and what do we know, which is actually a very interesting uh, topic still to me, but it was making me miserable. And so after about three months, I said, uh, well, I don't know. This is, I'm, I don't want to be miserable for two years. So what should I, what if I did a book about some, something I truly love, and that happens to be puzzles. I have always loved puzzles. As a kid, I drew mazes on by pencil and, and crosswords I do every night. And so I took a deep dive, and by the way, the pandemic was sort of the golden era to do this because puzzles just took off. Uh, and I discovered that my thesis is puzzles are not a waste of time, quite the opposite. They make us better thinkers. They teach us life lessons. They make us more innovative, creative, even more compassionate, more uh, give us more grit. So I am uh, full on the, the puzzle train. And there were just so many different genres of puzzles that I didn't know anything about. So it was a deep dive into uh, everything from jigsaws to secret codes, and I went to the CIA headquarters to look at one of the most famous uncracked secret codes to chess puzzles. I played chess with Gary Kasparov, and I won't tell you who won. I don't want to ruin that part of the... Uh, <laughs> he won. But, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> but uh, yeah, learning about chess puzzles. Uh, so it was a wonderful two years. I loved researching. I didn't love writing it. I, I still hate writing. Uh, just sitting alone in a room is, I find, uh, incredibly depressing. But I feel very lucky to be a writer in that I can research and then I can talk to people like you about it. And, and that I love. Yeah, so the, the fun for you is the guinea pigging, I guess, if we were to put a term on that. Maybe, maybe we I can, like the verb, yeah. <laughs> maybe we can uh, dive into some strategies on how to be better guinea pigs. I, I just as a, a, a seed to plant here, my wife and I are doing improv classes starting this week. And it was just uh, a fun little thing that I thought would uh, increase my abilities as a podcaster. And so maybe I'll explain some of my adventures into the world of improv. But let's dive into some of the content of the puzzler. So just so everybody listening understands, you kind of dive into different types of puzzles and then explain the, the cool characters that you met, the famous people in each section. And so I wanted to start by zooming in a little bit further in the book, but math and logic puzzles. Uh, and specifically, I wanted to start with your meeting Tanya Kanova, Ko Kovanova, I don't know if I, I got that. So um, tell us about uh, what questions she asked you right as you got on the call. And then there are a few things I want to go from there. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right. Like you said, it's got 
uh, different chapters on different types of puzzles. And it also has puzzles in it. So that is, and also a contest, uh, a $10,000 hidden contest. So uh, anyway, uh, but yes, back to logic and math puzzles. Uh, one of the top logic and math solvers in the world is this woman who, who emigrated from Russia, from the Soviet Union, and she has a blog where she's printed some of the hardest puzzles ever known to humans, and she is tough because she's like, she's like the Sphinx. She won't let you pass unless you answer her riddle. So when I got on the phone or got on Zoom with her, she said, now wait, I'm trying to remember. The riddle was, um, I have two coins. They add up to 15 cents. One of the coins is not a nickel. What do I have? And I'm like, oh, my, I don't know. I, I was not expecting this. But I did something that I, I is a very important part of solving any puzzle, any problem, is to look at the language and see what's hidden in the language. And in this case, she said one of them is not a nickel. She didn't say both of them are not a nickel. So what if one of them was a nickel and one of them is a dime? And that was my guess. And she said, you passed. And I was allowed to interview her. There you go. And you were you were, you were able to dive into the mind of the Sphinx itself. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. I, I, I love that. I love that you had to pass and you passed with flying colors. And so I, the reason why I wanted to start here is because I think this opens up uh, some great opportunities for us to dive deeper and talk about what you've learned about getting yourself to think outside of the box. Because that question in and of itself, like you had to sit and think about the broader perspective and kind of look at the different words. And you explain in your book, there's uh, several favorite ways that you are thinking outside of the box. And one of them is figuring out the real goal. Uh, so I guess we just we just came off of the, the nickel and the dime problem. But one of the ones you also talk about is the fly problem. So I thought this would be a great way to figure out to teach people about the importance of figuring out the real goal. So um, if it's okay with you, AJ, I'll read it, and then you can kind of explain uh, like how you went about thinking about it and, and how you would encourage people to ask underlying questions that may solve the question at a higher level. Does that sound Love like a plan? It. Okay, Love cool. It. So So here's the riddle, the fly problem. Two boys on bicycles, 20 miles apart, begin racing directly toward each other. The instant they started, a fly on one handlebar of one bicycle started flying straight toward the other cyclist. As soon as it reached the other handlebar, it turned and started back. So this is a very disciplined fly. It doesn't go <laughs> all over the place. It's going directly. So so flies, the fly continues to fly back and forth in this way from handlebar to handlebar until the, do, the two bicycles meet. If each bicycle had a constant speed of 10 miles an hour and the fly flew at a constant speed of 15 miles per hour, how far did the fly fly? So um, if you want to pause and try to figure out what happened there, uh, but I, I, my initial reaction, uh, AJ, was to do exactly what you thought most people's reaction was, is like, okay, let me, let me figure out the distance between the handlebars and go back and forth. But um, if you think about what, what I said in the beginning, figuring out the real goal, you can actually solve it much more efficiently. So would you, would you share, share how we can do that? Right. Yeah, the key there, as you say, is to say, what are we answering? What are we really looking for? And don't get caught up in the weeds quite yet. So if you think about it, what we're really looking for is how far 
can a fly going 15 miles an hour fly in the time that it takes the bikes to meet. So you don't need to add up every little back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth, which is very hard. It's called summing an infinite series. It's like high level math. But step back and say, listen, these they're two, two kids on bikes. They're 20 miles apart. The bikes are going towards each other at 10 miles an hour. What, uh, how long is it gonna take for them to reach? Like that simple math is gonna take uh, an hour. Wait, is it going to take hour, an hour? An hour, yeah. Yeah, an hour. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, yeah, because, you know, 10 miles and they re meet at the middle. Uh, so the fly is going to be flying around for an hour and it goes at 15 miles an hour. So what's the answer? It, then Indeed. it becomes totally clear, 15 miles. And that's the same answer you'll get if you do it the super complicated way. So the point is shortcuts are sometimes wonderful. Uh, they have a bad rap, uh, but sometimes it's all about looking at the big picture. What are you trying to solve? And that can be in business, that can be in personal life. Uh, and I give an example in my personal life, uh, which is kind of goofy, but it, it, it was the first one that came to my mind, which was I was during the pandemic trying to cut my own hair and it was a disaster because uh, especially the back. I couldn't see the back, so the back was all patchy. And so I stepped back and I said, now what is the real problem I'm trying to solve? I'm not trying to solve for getting a great haircut. I'm trying to solve to look good on Zoom because all of my business was on <laughs> Zoom. So I really don't have to do anything with the back. I just have to cut the front and the sides, which I was able to do. And I left the back, so I, only, I had a mullet for the first time in my life, which is not a, something I'll, I'll get back, uh, I hope. But it was the perfect solution. It was like, simplify, simplify. What are you solving for? And I think that that is crucial in, in, any, in any area that you're solving yeah. problems. Love that. And AJ is hating me right now because he's like, you're pulling out all these quizzes. I didn't have my entire book memorized with all these things. <laughs> he's sitting, uh, that, that's so, so sorry for that. Hopefully I can get you the, the better details. But I, that, that is exactly why I wanted to bring this up. I think it's so relevant because like you say in the book, we often complicate problems or when you look at it without really going much deeper, you can sometimes miss the much more elegant solution if you slow down and try to determine what you're actually solving for. So I think that that is a, a really easy thing, especially when the world is full of tactics. Like, you know, there's a tactic on how to do anything in the world. But if you really kind of look beyond the tactics and you look a layer higher, uh, you can actually often solve the problem uh, in, in a much more elegant way than going back and forth or the, the infinite sums and all that good stuff. So absolutely. Yeah. Which I think is important when you're faced with a problem, don't immediately dive in, sit back and say, what is, what is it I'm really trying to accomplish? So slow down in the beginning and then you can go full force. Sweet. Okay, so we've talked about some math and logic puzzles. I want to dive into another section of your book, which is all about visual puzzles. And uh, I think this, it, it must have a spot in your heart because what do you tell the story about as a kid, uh, something that, you, you know, how you fell in love with optical illusions. So maybe tell a little bit about how you fell in optical illusions and what that has to do with uh, some tendencies you had as a kid, uh, but your, your nighttime ritual, I guess we'll say. <laughs> right. I, I did suffer and still do to somewhat some mild OCD. 
And so I had a bunch of rituals. I had a ritual for showering and ritual for going to sleep. And, and one of my rich, part of my ritual for going to sleep was to look at that uh, famous uh, illustration of the two, the vase. If you look at it one way, it's black and white. If you look at it, focus on the white, it looks like a vase. If you focus on the black, it looks like two people's faces facing each other. Uh, so their nose is almost touching. And uh, I, would, I would almost do it like uh, an exercise. I'd say, look at the vase, look at the faces, look at the vase, look at the faces. And to this it's, day, oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say, it's come full circle. Now you get to write a book about uh, optical illusions. Who would have thought? <laughs> right. And optical illusions to me are very, they're not trivial. They are very profound because I think that they are a huge metaphor for the way we see the world. Because you, it, it all depends on what you focus on. Uh, so I talked about this in my last book on gratitude. You can focus on the three or four things that go wrong every day, or you can focus on the hundreds that go right. Uh, a lot of times I feel like really jittery before a speech, and I can either interpret that as I'm, I'm totally nervous, I'm freaking out, or I can say, no, I'm excited, I'm amped. And this is part, uh, and you can do that with uh, with all sorts of things. I another example. This is one, one is a a little uh, more a little stranger. It was when I uh, go through TSA at an airport, and they sort of pat me down. I say, well, I could either be really annoyed, uh, or I could try to reframe it as like maybe I'm just getting like a, a very light massage. So uh, that is that one doesn't work quite as well. But to me, reframing is a, such an important skill. Uh, and like the biggest one, perhaps, is uh, you know instead of reframing failure as failure, reframe it as a learning. There, there's either learning or there's succeeding. There's no failing. Yeah, life is an optical illusion. There's the the, the meta answer there is that you can love choose. It the perspective that you love that. So or, or, uh, the perspective that you were choosing to view the problem or the current situation. So love that. So uh, where I want to go from here is I would love to dive into one more of your sections. And then where I, I want to kind of zoom out and kind of identify some of the common themes because you've solved so many puzzles as a result of this. So it's like high level. What are some of the ways that we can actually apply puzzle thinking to solving the problems in our life or our businesses? So before we get to that, let's go into the Rubik's Cube. And you and I have a shared affinity. I have my cube right here i'm showing it on the screen to aj nice. aj i have to tell you i have to tell you my my first story of solving the rubik's cube so i got it my dad told me he would buy me a bionicle uh so that kind of puts my age like it was it was a, basically one of those lego toys uh he told me he would buy me a bionicle if i figured out how to do the rubik's cube and so i start figuring it out and i take it to school i'm fiddling with it and somebody tells me they're like oh i can show you how to do it i'm like oh that's super cool and so she turns the the top layer like horizontally and then pops out the middle piece and and and, and, I, and i was like i was like that's cheating that's not cool and so I, <laughs> I i i ram it i ram the piece back in um and gianna if you happen to be listening you caused me so much anguish because of this because I put the piece that she took out the wrong way back into oh, the no. cube. And so I, I studied it. And I was trying to figure it out for like forever. And I'm like, these algorithms 
aren't freaking working. And then eventually I disassembled the whole cube, reassembled it, and then everything worked. And now I can solve the Rubik's Cube, no problem. But uh, Gianna D'Amico, if you're listening, you caused me lots of anguish by by trying to teach me how to do the Rubik's Cube incorrectly. So there's uh, my introduction. <laughs> I to the love it. Well, let me try to reframe that. I think she did you a favor because then you were able to see the inner workings and get to know the yes. Rubik's Cube better and know that there are ways to arrange it that don't work. So thank you, Gianna, for teaching <laughs> Brandon an important lesson. Yes, and I have since disassembled it. I know you talk uh, as a joke in the book about adding lube in your cube. There's like special lubes you can add in. So oh I've yeah, since... it's not a joke for these competitive yeah. Rubik's people. Like they have serious equipment. They got, yeah, the the, the Rubik Lubik, and they've got uh, magnets, and they've got all sorts of things. It's a it's a sport. It's not yeah, it's a, crazy. Yeah, it's not a hobby. Uh, I didn't I didn't have the official lube. I just stuck some Vaseline inside of mine, so it's a, a little bit faster. So that was that was my approach. But but anyways, <laughs> um, let's let's talk about your your lessons that you learned from Jeff Verasano, I think. Um, and so I, he was one of the main characters that you got to interview as a result. So who is he, and what are some of the things that you learned from Jeff? I love Jeff. He is one of the original Rubik's Cube champions. He, way back when it started in the early 80s, he wrote a book called How to Solve the Cube in 45 Seconds, which now is an embarrassment. The record now is three and a half seconds. But back then, that was impressive. And what I love about him is he figured out the algorithms himself. So he didn't have YouTube where he could watch it. And he says that was the biggest lesson is figuring out the algorithms and he went on he he went to Yale uh, and he did not become a professional cuber instead he decided to open a pizza shop in Atlanta but what I love about Jeff is that he approaches pizza the same way he approaches the cube which is rigorous algorithms and he actually wrote like a 30 page pizza recipe that's on the internet is still the number one searched pizza pizza recipe because it's got the level of detail is just hilarious and he you know he tested 200 different types of oregano he figured out how exactly how long to leave the dough out down to the second uh and and exactly what position to put the pizza in and it was what i love is it's all about trial and error you know, he said he went through like a thousand failed pizzas. He went, he had three exploded ovens. And to me, that's the big lesson. If you want to do something well, you've got to experiment. You've got to try all hundreds of combinations. And eventually you'll come with, away with one that works really well. So he is a, a model of experimentation in the pursuit of excellence. I'm curious, in your research for this, did you come across any data or interview anybody that spoke to the importance of basically treating a real-life situation like play or more like a puzzle and what the implications of having a more relaxed kind of approach to it? Have you, did, did that come across in your data? I don't remember seeing that in the book. Absolutely. Uh, if you talk to psychologists, they'll all tell you that when you are faced with a problem, uh, that if you are in a playful mood a loose mood then you are much more likely to come up with a solution which is which is why when you're angry you get the, you get tunnel vision and it's much harder 
to come up with a solution, which is a real lesson because a lot of times I would get furious at these puzzles and then there was no way I was going to solve them. So I'd have to step back uh, and maybe take a break, watch a funny show and then go back. Uh, so that really is a huge important life lesson for me is uh, one of the mottos of the book is don't get furious, get curious. So when you're faced with a problem, don't get angry, get curious. How can I solve it? What, what are the, what can I try? What experiments can I try? And, and it was actually, I didn't make up the, it, it's a motto that a psych, child psychologist uh, I was uh, reading said to when you're dealing with kids. So don't get furious at your kids, get curious. Um, but I say, don't restrict it to kids. Do it with other people, do it with the world, do it with business. Don't get curious, don't get furious, get curious. Yeah, I think that in and of itself is a massive permission for me to, and I think I've kind of done this naturally, but to look at problems more like a puzzle. And I think that's one of the things that you argue in the book is that simply reframing it from saying it's a problem to calling it a puzzle has implications. Is that is that correct based on what you found? Oh, huge, huge to me. First of all, it's just uh, much more motivating. Like if I hear about the climate crisis, it makes me want to curl up in the fetal position and, and lie in the corner. But if someone says, let's look at this climate puzzle and how can we fix it? Then I'm like, all right, well, it's a puzzle. Let's get to it. Let's get, let's figure out the solutions. So even just framing it as a puzzle makes it more motivating. It also uh, implies that there is a solution. And I think life is different than puzzles in that there's never just one solution. Like in a good puzzle, there is one solution. But in life, there are many solutions and you've got to figure out which which are better than the others. But, uh, but going into a problem saying, you know what, there is a solution, that's huge. Just that mindset is huge. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I'm definitely going to borrow that and thinking about things as puzzles instead of problems. And I think it makes it engages that childlike wonder of play instead of just being so serious about everything all the time. I want to revisit a little bit about the algorithmic thinking, because I think one of the examples that you give in the book is you've started to think a little bit more quote unquote, algorithmically about the, the things that you do in your life. And you have a really cool, I think this is kind of related to your gratitude practice that you talk about and thanks a thousand, but uh, talk to us a little bit about the algorithm that you do when you use related to the alphabet before you go to bed. <laughs> oh yeah. So I do think algorithms, implementing them through your life is, is wonderful. And I talk in the book that I don't think everything can be reduced to an algorithm. There's a debate uh, whether everything, you know, humans can be reduced, and I'm not sure they can, but, but some are incredibly uh, helpful. And one is when I'm going to sleep, uh, I don't count sheep uh, because I don't find that effective, but I do count things to be grateful for. And I do it in a structured way, so I do it alphabetically. So. I might, uh, I'm falling asleep, I might say, start with A, I'm grateful for the apple pancakes that my kids made over the weekend, or B, I'm grateful for uh, for my talk with Brandon. There you go. So, Sweet, give so, uh, some pre-work for you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that'll help for tonight. Cool. Uh, so yeah, I'm a big fan. And I also, related to algorithms are checklists. I, I also am a huge fan of checklists and I have right here in my drawer, I have a checklist of, of like 30 things I do every morning from 
sending a note to my mom for something that I'm grateful for to uh, to brainstorming for 15 minutes, uh, just random ideas, which we can talk about. That's another algorithm I use. Yeah, well, to, I want to uh, zoom into both of those. Is that a, so it's a handwritten note to your mom? And no, then you send them to her or you just I'm, text her? I wish I were that good. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling guilty. No, I just email her and she emails me back one thing just to remind ourselves. And then, yeah, I find, you know, for me as a writer and for entrepreneurs out there, of course, ideas are your lifeblood. Uh, so I, and some people are good at getting ideas just in the shower or walking around. I find being more disciplined about it to be very effective so i will every morning 15 minutes i use my remarkable tablet which is a little with a little um, uh, stylus and i spend 15 minutes coming up with ideas 98 percent of which are terrible they're just crap but uh but just a the exercise of doing it to to stretch that mental muscle and B, there is that 2% that's like, you know what? It, it, something that sticks with me like a week or a month later, I'm like, you know what? That might be valuable. Let me pursue it. So I love that. The, uh, so every morning. What, what is the structure of that? So, so this, I think this might be related to some of your, your other, other work is, I, I think it was Ben Franklin. I, I don't remember, but I, I could swear some important historical figure, we'll just put it that way, had some <laughs> uh, a habit where they, before they went to bed, they asked themselves a question to their subconscious. And then they, in the morning, they woke up and started journaling on it. I don't remember where I heard that. Maybe I made it up. Who knows? Um, no, but I what is, is, is the structure that you just kind of wake up with a fresh brain and you're just going to say, here's a blank piece of paper. Let me write the first thing that comes to my mind that could be an idea or is it more structured like i'm writing a book and i need 10 ideas for this chapter free for free flow how, do, how does the actual practice work for you? i do both i do but it's a great okay. question uh sometimes it's literally uh just coming up with a random topic i might have i might um have like like make my office into a playground so i have you know uh, magazines or books or, or objects all around for me to riff off of. So sometimes it is just, for instance, uh, it's snowing out. What can I think about uh, snowmen? What if it was snow woman? What if it was a snow non-binary person? What if it was instead of a cigar or, they, or a pipe, they had a vape? Uh, and again, as I say, these are not good ideas, and I'm never going to use them. But it was, but this the the ability to keep that muscle going so that your brain gets out of its ruts, I think, is crucial. Sometimes, though, I'll say, you know what, I need I need a book, and so um, so then I will say I'm going to come up with ten book ideas and and let myself off the hook and say uh, probably none of them are going to be the ones for me but i'm going to do it until i come up with 10. so i've been curious i want to go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole here because like i said in the beginning of many of the the, the books that i read not many of them make me just laugh out loud and you you do that so well i, I love i love that in in your work but Thank many you, of them come, come of course many of them come in like weird analogies or comparisons or just ways that you, I was trying to find in my notes, you had one about, I think it was just off the top of my head. It was about the, you were like, when you first discovered the jigsaw puzzle competition, you're like, 
it seems like the most random thing that you're taking something that's normally meditative and you're making it do it faster. And you had some comments about it's like a, a napping competition or a yoga tournament. <laughs> I just remember laughing at that comparison. So I, I was curious, just since we're down this rabbit hole, a little bit of brainstorming ideas. Do you have like analogies or those kind of like funny quips do those come to you and you write them down and you're like i'll use this at some point or are you staring at a blank cursor and you're like i need something funny here and then it just comes out <laughs> how does that work well, a little of both a lot of it is just during that brainstorming that i was talking about so really? okay. if but if for instance i i come to uh, I, I need some new fresh idea and i'll be i'll come up with like 10 options so napping Napping competition and yoga competition were just two of the uh, of the options because I do think yeah just over brainstorming almost is is a very effective practice and uh, and I just love metaphors I think are so powerful whether you're a writer or you're giving a a, a pitch if you're an entrepreneur you know the whole Uber for mountain bikers or whatever uber for that is a very it's cliched now but it's a very effective way of so always be looking for metaphors because otherwise you just get stuck in your rut and i was actually talking to um a friend of mine who's right now getting into psychedelics uh i am not into those personally uh maybe sometime in the future but he said one metaphor he loves is that uh, your mind is like a, a, a ski mountain and you go down the same slope every day and the ruts get really deeper and deeper and psychedelics are almost like a fresh coat of snow at, mm. that lets your, which I loved, but I think you can get that fresh coat of snow without psychedelics. You can do it by constantly coming up with new ideas and constantly looking for new approaches. So whatever it is, look at it from a hundred different perspectives whether it's the snowman um uh, you take one part of it and just twist it or you you go zoom way out or you zoom way in all of these are important strategies well that makes me that gives me a lot of confidence that that I don't know, I guess you read, read, I read like your work. I'm like, he's just spitting these out. Like they're nothing, but like, so, so those no take you, you, you just have multiple ideas and you're like you, for one sentence, you might have several ways that you can go with it. And then, it, and oh, then yeah, eventually no. you get the snot inducing laugh that I have. <laughs> well, <laughs> then, a, you're very kind for the compliment, <laughs> but B, yeah, no, these are, uh, I mean, the, the trick is to make it look easy, but it is painful. These are like, <laughs> Sweat, blood, and tears go into every sentence. It is, it is not easy. And I do think a lot. There are some people who who are great at just extemporaneous, uh, but but a lot of them, like Robin Williams, I'm told that he one of his one of his brilliant uh, abilities was the ability to make it seem like he had just come up with it off the cuff, but that it was meticulously thought through. His and so his his routines were like written to down to the syllable. But when you look at it, you're like, oh, my God, he's like so fast. He came up with that out of the blue. Uh, so, yeah, for me, that is the way preparation, preparation, preparation. Hmm. Well, that 
that that that here's good that that is good to hear that coming from you that that's really cool and gives me some more confidence in my writing because sometimes I stare at a, uh, a cursor I'm like dang <laughs> you know uh, but it's, I guess that that goes into the whole the whole comparison trap I think we talked about that in our last episode of the uh, overcoming imposter syndrome and all that kind of stuff so right. thank you for that fun detour I'm glad that we got a glance into some of your writing process um, oh, let's let's go back a little bit to the the some of the overall themes that I think I identified from the book that I think were really applicable that I wanted to make sure I remembered. One of them we already talked about framing problems as a puzzle instead of a problem. You talked about don't get furious, get curious. Um, but there's another one that I wrote at the very top, and this comes from uh, the Godfather of Sudoku. So you got a chance to meet him. Uh, his name is Maki Kaji, um, and and he sits, and you, you have a chance to go see him, and he writes an equation on a white on the whiteboard, and that is something that has stuck with you. What is the equation that he wrote, and what does it mean? Yes, the equation was he boiled down puzzles down to their essence in three symbols: the question mark, the arrow pointing forward, and then the exclamation point. And that really is what it is. Every puzzle boils down to you're met with a situation that's baffling, and then the the arrow is the, the struggle, the um, the work, the uh, figuring it out, and then exclamation point, aha! That's the aha moment. And by the way, I don't think it's just puzzles. I think this is a very good uh, sort of um, summary of of stories of of all sorts of journeys. And one, but one of the lessons that I love from Mr. Kaji is he said, you've got to enjoy the arrow. Uh, it's, the, you know, the, the other way of saying it, the, enjoy the journey because you may or may not reach the destination. You really got to enjoy the journey. You got to enjoy the trip up the mountain. And I love that because, yeah, a lot of times I won't solve the puzzle, but I have to admire the craftsmanship of the puzzle. I've got to admire the... The, the, the fun, different experiments that I try. So, yeah, that was a great sort of life, almost Zen lesson from Mr. Kaji. Yeah, that's so cool. I think another analogy I've heard is uh, to live the dash uh, in mm. the sense that at the, at, the, at the end of your life, when you have a gravestone above you, if you get buried, there's your birth date, a dash, and an end date when you died. And so at the end of the day, it's a reminder that you have to, the, the life is that dash. It is the beginning, between the beginning and the end, and that it's really important to enjoy the whole process. Uh, but obviously, the I question love that. mark. There you go. Yeah. Steal that Well, uh, just to expand on that, I mean, there, uh, my son is in a Shakespeare play, and there's the famous line, um, all's well that ends well. But I think that's terrible, because it's not, nothing ends well. You know, you're going to die. <laughs> So don't focus on the end. Focus yeah. on the dash, as you say. And uh, there's Louis C.K. used to have um, a, a little riff in his stand-up comedy about when you give someone a puppy, you are giving them, you know, death because the puppy is eventually going to grow up and die. And I'm just like, that is not a good way to look at the world. You know, yes, it is. Everyone's going to die, but enjoy the dash. Enjoy the journey. Yeah, one day you will miss picking up the dog poop when you don't have the dog anymore. You know, it's one of those things. Right. You just got to be grateful for <laughs> the craziness uh, throughout throughout the whole process. And right. one day you'll look back at it fondly. So um, love that. Uh, another topic that's similar to uh, living the dash, I think that part of the way that we can do that is to 
adopt several mindsets. One of them you talked about the power of reframing things, right? Uh, but another way that you talk about in the book is being flexible with your thinking. I think maybe, I don't know if they're two distinguished things, but I guess uh, what I was curious as somebody that has done all these puzzles in this research for this book, are there ways that you're, I think people inherently know that being flexible in your thinking is a good thing, but are there some ways that you can recognize when you're maybe not being flexible or what are some strategies that you've kind of come up with to be more flexible in your thinking? That's a great question. And yeah, to me, that is one of the hugest takeaways of this experiment is flexible thinking and almost holding beliefs uh, provisionally don't and probabilistically say, you know, there's a 40% chance that uh, that this is the right answer. Never just say this is the right answer or this isn't the right answer. So to me, that is very powerful, even just putting a percentage on it. And um, I also think uh, just writing in pencil instead of in pen, and that can be metaphorically or that can be, uh, uh, you know, literally. But metaphorically, I do try to keep all of my beliefs in pencil and I say, you know what, this is, this is a hypothesis that seems to be true. But I, if there's evidence that overturns it, I'm okay with erasing that. I embrace the eraser and I'm okay with updating. So almost finding joy in updating your beliefs, finding joy in being proven wrong as opposed to, um, but I, I do think just to go back to the lack of flexibility, stubbornness is one of the huge problems in every part of life. In business, if you're not, uh, you know, pivoting might be an overused word, but if you are not able to adjust to what you see in the market, you're in trouble. If you, same with, um, and the same with puzzles. I, I did one of my adventures, I went to the hardest corn maze in the world, and the guy who owns it sort of stands on a platform watching people uh, and he sort of, he says he's like a god. He just watches the mortals in their foolishness. And he says the worst are our teenage boys who are inflexible in their thinking. So they'll go down one, uh, one little tunnel and they'll hit the wall. They'll go back and they'll try it again. And they just keep trying. No, you are never going to get through that wall. It's a wall. So you've got to adjust. Uh, and being able to adjust is, to me, that is one of the, uh, the secrets to success. And if you don't, if you fall in love with your hypothesis, that's where I think a lot of the problem, not just in puzzles, but in, in life, have you get people who are um come up with a, a theory and then find the look for uh, confirming evidence that's how QAnon starts that's how conspiracy theories start you've got to go in with curiosity you've got to go in like a scientist and being saying i'm not going to prejudge i'm just going to go in without an axe to grind and try to figure out what's going on yeah it's also scary too with uh, AI and your news feeds and all that kind of stuff. Cause you have, if you have a fixed mindset, like, and you're just constantly being shown more of what 
it you know the, the facebook feed thinks you're supposed to be seeing it just kind of kind of digs more of those roots in the brain like you were talking about before so i think it's important and i love that analogy of having the eraser uh but keep in mind that the information that you're being exposed to is not necessarily the full data set, that there's probably more that you can explore, especially if you have the ability to have conversations with people that are, um, you know, outside of your typical realm of doing things. So love that. Totally. And and I just to add on to that, um, I love following people on my Twitter and Facebook who I disagree with. I just find that much more interesting than uh, being in an echo chamber. So I really go out of my way. Even I have to be okay with being annoyed because you know, reading something that you totally disagree with can be very irritating. But yeah. I think that the benefits outweigh the costs. Yeah, love all that. So I so let's let's go in a direction that this is really, really interesting for me and very timely for me. But in one of the parts of your book, you talk about how you had the opportunity to create a puzzle for people, uh, for your wife's company, which is which is uh, Watson Adventures, which I had the chance to go and experience one. So anybody can go check out a, a Watson Adventure, which essentially, AJ, you can feel me if I'm wrong, but it's a, they do tours of local cities and kind of get you to explore a little bit that's more. That's it. That, they do. It's the almost like it. a game inside a museum or a historic neighborhood. Now, though, they do a lot uh, virtually. So they're virtual games and virtual scavenger hunts, which is what I designed. Yeah. So cool. So so here's the reason why I'm really excited about this topic is because you had this opportunity to design the game. We've talked earlier on about reframing problems as puzzles. And I think that many, uh, you could draw the parallel between, you know, as you grow your business, you're also solving a puzzle, right? Like you have the different pieces that's your customers, you have the relationships that you have, you have your pricing model, you have your marketing, you have, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. So there's lots of uh, tweaks that you can make to your puzzle that is that is your business and you came a, you came across several insights uh, when learning how to create uh, a puzzle uh, an effective puzzle and I love the first lesson that you talk about how the real goal is not to stump the solvers the real goal is to bond the puzzlers together through a shared struggle so maybe I'm uh, stretching the analogy a little bit thin and maybe we can find the analogy here but I just think this is really important um, and I, I think there's something here so would you mind talking to that a little bit about the importance of that when you're designing a puzzle absolutely and it's and it's just like we, what we were talking about earlier step back and say what is it really i'm trying to solve for and you could you could say when you start out making a scavenger or a puzzle hunt oh i'm gonna stump these guys that's gonna be fun uh, they're gonna be so frustrated no that's not what you want to do uh this is a it's a team building the the whole idea is to bring people together, to have them cooperate, have them sh each show that they have their strengths. So that's what's great about a team is you've got someone who might be good at the, the spatial thinking, someone who's good at the music, someone who's good at the words. And you want to create puzzles that appeal to all of those. Uh, but as, as you say, I think that is generalizable. Uh, when you're doing business, you, you know, you could be, you could say, oh, my goal is I'm going to, you know, make as much money as possible, as quickly as possible. But actually, your goal is to, to have satisfied customers so that they'll come back and that you have longevity. So what can you do to have the happiest customers and mm. still make money? I think, okay, I just found the, the massive parallel for me that I, I oh, was good. looking for, but now I found it. It's, it's, um, 
you know, lots of times when you have customers or clients, you have to create a customer journey, right? Like what is the relationship that you're building with them? And in many ways that is like designing a game. And when you have a client, your things aren't going to be happy and rosy the entire time. There's going to be moments of hardship or things that you have to solve or fix together. And so I think that that's a, an important frame to have. At least that's a conclusion that I'm drawing is that it's not, yes, the outcome is to help your client get the result, but at the end of the day, part of it is the the shared struggle and what you learn as a result of going through things together. And so if you're cognizant of that being part of the journey, um, you can kind of create different ways that you can actually make that process understood that it's going to happen for them and then also help people through through those moments and, um, you know, foster teamwork and all that kind of good stuff in the middle of it. So that was that, that was the that's aha good. I had. <laughs> nice. I think that's a great aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Almost uh, say that it's a, almost you are playing a game with them. You're going on this journey with them as yeah. opposed to. Uh, yeah, I love that. And, and another part of puzzle making that I think is somewhat relevant to any part of life, including business, is great puzzle makers give you aha moments throughout the puzzle. So, for instance, the, there's a genre called the Japanese puzzle box where it's these amazing intricate wooden boxes and you have to move these panels to eventually open the box. Sometimes you have to move over a hundred different panels. Uh, now the worst kind are where you get no feedback and it takes you a hundred moves but you don't know are, you, uh, are things going in the right direction? Are they in the wrong direction? So a good puzzle will give you like a little aha Oh, that drawer opens. That means I'm on the right track. And I think that's important for any, whether it's art or for any business, give, let people know where they are and that they're on the right track. Mm. Yes, we're all little, we all need the, the gratification points, right? Yeah. Exactly, you, you, exactly. You have to, you have to, like the little pigeons, you got to have to release a pellet every once in a while <laughs> when, you're solving, when you're solving the problem. Um, another, another thing that I saw in game, not, this wasn't necessarily in the chapter about you creating the game, um, but I just saw this throughout the book of basically alluding to the power of contests throughout these puzzles. Like there's one about like, um, it was where, where was you had people this book called Masquerade that you talked about. There was people digging up lawns to try to find something, and there was another one that I highlighted about um, like there was a hundred thousand dollar prize, and people spent one hundred sixty million hours on the tournament. So basically, what I saw was like, wow, it seems like if you have a well designed contest. Uh, it can create lots of buzz. It can create lots of excitement. Um, and obviously you're doing this with with your book, hiding a puzzle inside of it. So I'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit about what you've observed of the power of creating a contest when designing a game or a competition. Yeah, absolutely. And this book, I was inspired by that book, Masquerade, which came out 40 years ago. Uh, and the guy had hidden a gold rabbit a little sculpture of a golden rabbit somewhere in england and people just went nuts and they dug up as you say they dug up hundreds of gardens and they were uh, it was just um, a mania so i thought you know i should do a contest so in the book itself there is a a hidden uh a hidden code uh that if you crack it you can put it into the puzzlerbook.com website and it'll open up this uh, amazing puzzle contest, which was written by a friend of mine and 
some of his colleagues. And the first team or first person, I mean, to solve that wins $10,000. And it's going to go on for a month because the puzzles are going to be released one at a time. And I am hopeful, it seems so far, that it's going to create a lot of buzz. And I think the the hope is, A, um, you know, people love secrets. They love to discover things. So this is a, a fun way for them to discover. And also the key is I, I hope to make it so much fun that even if you don't get that $10,000, that you'll, you'll say to yourself, well, that was worth it. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, you know, I got it for free. I got it for free just from getting the book uh, or reading the book. So anyway, I am, yeah, I'm a big fan of contests. And, and to me, that's marketing a book is is like a puzzle it's like how do you how do you um instead of just sending out a hundred books to a bunch of radio stations and, and hope for the best how can i proactively come up with really interesting ways to uh to market this and, and the contest is one uh, but i have a whole list of of other uh, ideas that I'm going to be implementing that I'm excited Maybe about. Maybe that came from a, a morning brainstorming session of yours, uh, d different different ways there to market the book. Another another use case for that. I, I <laughs> And I've been thinking a, a lot about this, uh, especially because I just finished reading Ready Player One uh, and watching mm. the movie. I don't know if you've watched that, AJ, mm. but uh, Love you know, the whole thing is, yeah, so, so good. And so I've been thinking a lot about how to, to create unique experiences, to gamify things for the people that you're working with and just make it more fun. I think I think that's kind of the, a huge takeaway I had is just like, how could you design an experience that, you know, has these, the, the question mark, arrow, exclamation point, uh, you know, as, as part of the experience for all the people that you're working with. Um, and yeah, I just, I think there's a lot of fun when you, when you play with that. So that's been kind of my mindset shift as a result of going through that's great. some of this as well. That's great. Yeah. Well, you certainly make your podcast fun. So it is a joy. <laughs> I, what I love about it is that you, I, I feel I learn, but I also have a good time. So I'm hoping that I'm providing some entertainment. But uh, of but you, you, you have a um, you have a great podcast in that respect. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So uh, a few more things and then we'll kind of wrap things up. One other thing in the topic of game design, you talk about constraints yields creativity. So can you talk a little bit more about the importance of that? Oh yeah, I think there's nothing that is worse for creativity than the blank page. So if you tell someone write a poem, they're just gonna look at the blank page and be overwhelmed. So much better to say, you know, write a poem from the point of view of an elephant or write a poem uh, about uh, a quinceanera. You know, it's give them something specific so the more uh, it's a paradox, but it's so true that the more you are constrained, the more creative you can be. And that's why I think when you're coming up with ideas, uh, don't just sit there in front of a um, you know blank page. Say, I'm going to come up with 10 ideas, uh, 10 business ideas uh, related to bicycles or 10 business ideas related to transportation. Then you're much more likely to come up with interesting ideas than if you just look at the blank page. And, uh, and try to spin something out. 
I'm just realizing a tickle as to where I've heard someone else say this before, and I think it's somebody that you're close with. Does James Altucher do this too? I feel like I heard him mention something like this. Maybe, maybe you don't know. Oh, yeah, like that we talk about it all the time. That okay. we are both big fans of, of brainstorming. Uh, and he's he's more rigorous. He, he does say... Uh, he tries to get, I forget whether it's 10 or 20 ideas a day. I, I'm okay more with if I do it, you know, for 15 minutes and uh, come up with 70 ideas or two ideas. Uh, but he is also a believer in that. And he is one of the most prolific creative people I know. Yeah, well, there you go. There's a huge takeaway for everyone. I think I'm going to try to maybe, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll make that as a public commitment to you, AJ. I will make that a challenge for the next week to come up with 10 things <laughs> and, and see where that I goes. Maybe, that. maybe I'll, I'll add that as something moving forward. So uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, one, I, I guess, something else that not related to puzzles that I, I wanted to ask you about, because I, I mentioned doing improv. I sat down with my wife earlier, uh, and I was like, what are some fun things that we can do to kind of really start to build our quote-unquote life resume? Um, and I, I heard this term come from Jesse Itzler, who he's got, I guess I don't need to explain all this stuff, but I think you, of, of many of the guests that I've had on the show, you have the most interesting life resume of, of basically <laughs> anyone. Not many people can say this. And I think that this is a topic that as, as you live the dash, as you look back at your life, you know, you can probably look back and remember the time that you walked into the CIA or the year in which you were living biblically or the year you were trying to track everyone down to thank them for it. Uh, so I thought this would be a great opportunity to ask someone that has a really unique life resume what tips or advice you would give to somebody looking to build that out uh, as, as from the perspective of the human guinea pig himself. <laughs> ah, well, thank, I love that uh, question. And and I also I'm I'm. Uh, so happy for you that you're taking improv. I, I want to do that. So let me know how it goes. Sure, we'll because uh, yeah, that is one of my my, my big crusades or, or uh, mantras is experiment with life all you can. Uh, and you don't have, you know, I'm lucky enough that I can make a living of doing the more extreme experiments like <laughs> growing a huge beard and wearing biblical clothes for a year. Uh, but you don't have to, it doesn't have to be that extreme. It can be little things. It can be uh, not gossiping for a week or, uh, you know, trying to eat, trying going vegetarian for a week. It could be going, uh, you know, a keto for a week. It could be um, uh, uh, taking improv classes or, or new types of classes, going to... Vowing to always go to a new restaurant, never repeat a restaurant. And to me, like we were talking about the ruts that we form in our brain, this is such a crucial way to keep us from getting those neural ruts and to keep our brain loose. And to me, it's just a much, uh, uh, I, I just find it a much more pleasurable way to live because you are experiencing all new stuff you are you're constantly challenging yourself you're constantly learning and uh so yeah just push yourself to do experiments make pledges do them publicly so say when you announce something then you're more likely to do it and and again don't uh don't think you have to do a huge experiment they could be tiny they could be walking a different way to work every day mm. trying a new toothpaste I, yeah 
I try to, I've, I've been trying to do things that I, my gut reaction is I don't want to do that and then forcing mm. myself to do that. <laughs> so nice. I, I, I haven't publicly signed up for it or committed to it, but I want to do a marathon this year. And that just seems wow. like something I've never done before. And I, I'm not a runner. And I had a friend that went from zero to doing a 75 miler. He's like, just do a 75 miler. And I'm like, <laughs> let me start with a marathon first, dude. Like, <laughs> don't just throw me into there. But, uh, but anyways. That's insane. Well, yeah, good I luck. That, I hope that uh, works. Yeah, I've never done thank, that. I've never done yeah. that. Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I just think that that's an important thing for everyone to think about is like if you look back at 2022 or 2021, can you point out something that was exciting that you did? And maybe like AJ said, it's not something crazy. Like another really simple thing that my wife and I did is we bought a year pass to all the state parks. And like that's mm. a fun thing that we can do together is just go and do those state parks. You know, nothing crazy. I think the state pass was 50 bucks or something like that for the entire year. But like, you know, it's a good excuse to go out and attempt something new. So I've been just thinking about more and more about that. And so uh, I think it's a, a fun way to spice things up. And like you said, to erase some of those neural pathways. Um, so yeah. So uh, AJ, I know we're kind of coming up on time here. Any any final fun stories or, or things that you wanted to dive into that we didn't cover with the puzzler? I mean, I know you've alluded to your MIT mystery hunt. You you know you talked about some of the crazy Japanese puzzle boxes. Um, <laughs> anything that you, you you want to dive into that you think would be fun that we didn't get to? Well, I did love my trip to the CIA uh, to visit the, one of the hardest unsolved puzzles in the world, which is this uh, sculpture called Kryptos which has a bunch of mysterious symbols on it and and people have been trying for 30 years to figure out the code they've cracked part of it but still remains uncracked to me the big takeaway of that is is grit i mean these people there are hundreds of them and I, i'm on uh, an online forum with them and they are every day they're out there trying maybe it's morse code maybe it's uh, you know related to the um, uh, you know Native American languages. They've got all sorts of theories, and uh, so yeah. When I so I've, I'm helping my son with his homework, math homework, and I want to give up after two minutes. And I say to myself, you know, thirty years. These people have been trying for thirty years. I can give it another <laughs> few minutes. So yeah, to me, they're just a lot of. And I mean, most of all, I hope that. Uh, it's a fun book to read because it's got tons of puzzles, both old and new, historic, the oldest puzzles and the newest puzzles. So, uh, what, which to me is is crucial. Like we, you know, puzzles can teach us life lessons, but they're also fun. For sure. And I would encourage everybody to, to pick up the book and go down the little rabbit holes. Like, I don't know, whenever I, I guess maybe it's because I knew I was interviewing you, but I like to go a little bit deeper sometimes. And you mentioned mm. a name and like, oh, let me go check out their YouTube channel. So I had a ton of fun checking out Kagan Schaefer. Um, and it, I, I will I will I will put a link to a YouTube video that I found. But did you want to really quickly talk about what what he did? Because I think this is mind blowing. Yeah, he is one of the great Japanese puzzle box makers in the world, but he also, his sort of uh, Sistine Chapel was that the director, Darren Aronofsky, uh, who you might have heard, he's, he's a great director, he asked Kagan to make him a puzzle desk. So Kagan spent four years and almost went insane. He says that he, he almost, uh, you know, he stopped seeing people and just spent all his time obsessing over this puzzle desk and it's got like 25 puzzles you have to solve these puzzles to open the drawers and it uh and it is just wild and and there's an 
there's sort of a meta puzzle in it that once you do solve it, it plays a tune on a, sort of a pipe organ, a wind pipe organ. Uh, and, and even more, you can change the tune if you uh, program it in different ways. So it is just the most complicated and hilarious desk ever created by humans. Yeah, I was blown away. Like, it's just like, and he says, he does the, the video I'll put in the show notes for anybody that wants to experience it. But like, he's like, this is one of two puzzles. And it's just like, there's 26 more. Uh, so <laughs> that was really fun. I also had fun exploring, um, I forget the guy's name. He's a YouTuber that you talk to, but he does, he has this really famous YouTube channel about uh, doing puzzles on. And Chris Ramsey, I think, Chris, and, right? Yeah. How, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And and I watched the video that you alluded to about solving the radio puzzle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, about like, a, a, he just like the solution to the puzzle is called it was a bad radio. And so what do you do to the, with a bad radio is you smack the shit out of it. <laughs> so a $2,500 puzzle, he just smacks the top of it and he opens and he just freaks out. So uh, I had a lot of fun going down those rabbit holes. I'll put those in the show notes. But uh, it, the, so yeah, so lots of hidden gems in the book. Um, AJ, what's the, where do you want people to go to go check it out? It's, uh, and get the it's book. called The Puzzler, and it's on uh, at all indie bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you name it. And, uh, and I think it makes a great gift for uh, your puzzle-loving friends, so even if you don't uh, love puzzles yourself. So, but uh, but I, as you can see, I love talking about it, and, and Brandon, you are a joy to talk to. So thank you for having me back. Of course. Thank you so much for being back. You're welcome back for any any of your crazy adventures anytime. And yeah, I, I think that was just so cool for me is whenever I get to see a world of, I think you mentioned this somewhere in the book, but it's like whenever you can see a world of people that are passionate about something, it's just so cool to see the the, the depths in which the world opens up. Like the, another person you alluded to is this person that solved the 42,000 piece puzzle, it was, it was like 26 year old jigsaw puzzler. And there was the other one. Oh, that was the other one I watched is like the, the guy that creates these impossible puzzles that don't conform to having edge pieces oh, yes. it's like there's empty space and they he they they call him the 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 troublemaker or something like that because he just creates anguish for yeah people he is a, in like these impossible to figure he, out puzzles. i think chief tormentor <laughs> is what he calls himself that's his chief, job yeah chief tormentor. yeah these are the craziest yeah, jigsaw so, puzzles you've ever seen yeah, so all that can be found inside of The Puzzler and more if you want to go down that that rabbit hole. And I guess I'll just have a conversation with you listening right now really quick. If you're brand new, this is the very first episode you decided to listen to and you decided to find out about all the crazy adventures of AJ Jacobs and The Puzzler. I'm super glad that you are here today. And if you didn't listen to episode one, despite our warnings, go back and listen to episode one with AJ uh, because that, that was uh, a whole other world of all the crazy experiments that AJ has done. Uh, and if you're returning, thank you so much for coming back. You know how much I appreciate you coming back week or week uh, weekend and week out. And whether you're new or returning, the favor that I always ask you is that if you've listened to a story today that made you laugh, that you think would would make a friend's day, please share it with them. My life has absolutely been changed by good podcasts. Um, so whether you choose to do that or not, I uh, AJ and I both appreciate you so much. So thank you for listening. And AJ, thank you so much for being here. Any final things that you want to say as we walk out today? No, thank you again. And uh, I can't wait to listen to more of your episodes even ones without me as a guest. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, AJ. Thank you.